Something that I wasn't expecting happened putting this episode together. When we first announced the topic, and the topic is gender, there was a lot of interest in submitting stories for it. I thought for sure that this was going to be the biggest episode ever. But when the deadlines came around, we actually only got a few submissions. And thinking about it, I guess this makes sense. I mean, gender is hard to talk about. Unless you live completely outside of society, in which case you're probably not listening to this podcast, it touches everyone's life, but it's so omnipresent that it can be hard to pinpoint any one great story about it over a lifetime of experiences that have been colored by your gender identity and presentation. And also, for a lot of people, gender is a site of a lot of anxiety or even trauma. When we do talk about it, the language we have to discuss the concepts involved isn't great. It can be abstract and fuzzy, or highly academic and technical. Still, we managed to get a few really great stories to share this week, but I want to acknowledge that the stories we got in no way represent the wide spectrum of people's experiences of gender. This is, of course, true of any theme that we cover here on the second page, but because gender is such a fraught topic, it seems particularly important to acknowledge it here. We didn't collect any stories from trans or non-binary storytellers, for example, or people whose experience of gender covers vastly different time periods or geographic areas. So, I also want to add this one other note to the episode before we really get started. Which is, if you've got a story about gender that you didn't get to share with us this week, please do be in touch. We'd love to work it into a future episode. This is the Second Page Amateur Storytelling Show. It's produced by me, Harris Laparoff, and my co-host, Sean Hansen, who is taking a break this week since I took my break last week. This week, we're telling stories about gender. Our first story this week is from Galia Godel. When I was 12, I decided that I was a lesbian. It was the only option that made any sense to me. I didn't think boys were attractive. They were rude and boring, and I had a crush on my best friend, Caitlin. She was amazing. She had blue hair, combat boots, and attractively crooked front teeth, and I would do anything for her. Clearly, I was a lesbian. I didn't have any media representation of lesbians to model myself after, but I somehow picked up from somewhere that lesbians were all butch. So, the hair had to go. I'm grateful that my mother believed that I should express myself in whatever manner I wanted. So when I asked her to shave my head, she just asked, All of it? Or do you want to leave some behind? Leave some behind, I decided. Shave everything but the bangs. Buzz went the clippers. Down wet my hair. 
scattered onto the newspaper that my mother laid out on the kitchen floor to make the cleanup easier. I'll be honest, in retrospect, it wasn't a good look for me. I dyed the bangs pink, and they were long, down to my collarbones. I didn't remember to ask my mother to trim the back very often, so it would go straight up, prickling like a crest behind the flat, pale sorbet-colored bangs. I overheated easily, so I wore tank tops most days, with a tie knotted around my bare throat. And, of course, the ubiquitous green plaid flannel shirt. Where did we all get our green plaid flannel shirts? Every dyke that I know had one in high school. We all wore the shirt and combat boots and baggy jeans. It was like we were all one species of bird, identifiable by our similar plumage. Mine was garish, neon green, with yellow and orange threads running through it. You could spot me a mile away. And when I lost it on a youth group trip in 11th grade, I cried. I somehow had it in my head that the only way I was allowed to be a lesbian was to be butch. Despite being attracted to the soft femininity of my classmates, their long, soft hair, their skirts, their cleavage, and their calves, I knew that to be a part of the lesbian club, to show everyone that I was a girl who liked girls, I had to be a dyke. I wanted those sweetly girly classmates to find me, heavyset and masculine, attractive. But that could never happen, because they were feminine. Straight. In my junior year of high school, I watched the movie Ten Things I Hate About You, and I fell in love with Heath Ledger. Oh, that smile, those shoulders. But what was I doing? I was gay. I only liked women. The concept of bisexuality was abstract to me. I knew what the word meant, but I didn't imagine that it could ever apply to me. I had no notion of the shifting fluidity of sexuality or the timeline of the Klein model. I only knew that my political and social identity of dyke was threatened by my own libido. Damn. There was some freedom in bisexuality, however. If lesbian Galia had to be butch, Bisexual Galia was suddenly allowed to wear skirts. I cautiously updated my style from Butch Dyke to Burt's Bees Bisexual. Still a shaved head, still binding my breasts, but earrings and the occasional peasant skirt under my oversized oatmeal-colored sweater. I was still limited, though, in how I allowed myself to dress. I'm sure this is familiar to some of you. I was a geek and I played D&D, and went to renaissance fairs and science fiction conventions, and all of my friends were men, and I wanted them to like me, to think that I was a real nerd, one of them. I wasn't like other girls. I was one of the guys. I didn't wear makeup or high heels or blow dry my hair. I didn't know how, and I crowed my ignorance as a mark of pride because it meant that I wasn't like other girls. Other girls cared about their looks. I cared about books, about sword fighting, about rolling dice. Other girls spent money on cosmetics. I spent mine on tickets to the next science fiction convention. I was so proud of myself for being a nerd, not a woman. I was a proud geek girl. But was I? I certainly wasn't proud of being a girl. How could I have been when I so loudly decried every part of me that made me a girl? 
and despite dating some men by this point in my life, I was still socially and politically a dyke. And dykes aren't girly, right? Right. I'm not like other girls. Have you ever had one of those moments where the smallest thing makes the biggest difference? I once told someone proudly, I'm not like other girls. And they said, well, what's wrong with other girls? Jesus, I have never been so floored in my entire life. What, what is wrong with other girls? Why did I hate women so much that I was proud to separate myself from them? I didn't have an answer then. It took me months to come up with one. I was so entrenched in the misogyny of masculine nerd culture that it felt natural for me, a proud feminist and bisexual woman, to deny the value of women who spent time and effort on their appearance. Jesus. I started reading makeup and fashion blogs and spending more time listening to my femme friends, and I discovered an entire, complex, brilliant world of femininity that I hadn't just missed, I had deliberately ignored, with no idea of the richness that I was passing by. I tried putting on makeup. I failed. Oh lord, did I fail. Do you know that I actually used to think putting on makeup would be easy? I looked like a raccoon. I, I looked like a six-year-old playing with their mother's stolen makeup. I looked like an idiot. And I thought it would be easy. Because I didn't see value in it. How could anything I didn't care about be hard? I swallowed my pride, and I asked for help. I'm grateful that no one made fun of me. I'm not so secure in myself that I could have handled that in such a strange place of vulnerability. To want to try something that I'd previously scorned and to find it hard? That was almost too much. I almost gave up. This is stupid, I grumped, shoving my drugstore eyeshadow and lipstick on a dusty lower shelf. And then I guiltily pulled them out again a few days later and said aloud, This isn't stupid. This is a skill that I haven't developed yet. And it's worthwhile. Why was it worthwhile? Why is it worthwhile? I'm not sure that I can articulate it. There is some strange power that I find in being a queer femme, in using glitter and pigment to change the way my face looks, to shape my breasts with a bra, to curve my calves with heels, to cut my bangs blunt and carefully arch my eyebrows. I choose what I want to look like, and I have chosen this appearance. There's power in being underestimated. Men have that same misogyny that I created in my younger self, and they think that any woman who carries around 12 shades of lipstick doesn't have the mental space to carry her intellect and logic along with it. I have privilege in being a white, cisgender, non-disabled femme, the person that society thinks should be allowed to exude sex appeal. Disabled women, women who were assigned male at birth, women of color, they shock men when they present femme, because men think that the point of makeup or dresses, or heels and hosiery, is to please them. And therefore, 
Why should anyone they don't want to be attracted to put effort in her appearance? I know why I love being a queer femme. Because for the first time in my life, I know who I'm actually dressing for. Alia Godel is a Philadelphia-based sex educator who works with adults with intellectual disabilities. She lives with her adorable polyamorous family and two cats. Our next story this hour is from Emma Anderson. My gender is simultaneously complicated and uncomplicated. Like everyone's, basically, I think. Uncomplicated because I'm a cis woman. I feel resonance with the sex and gender that was marked on my birth certificate. I go out into the world and people assume I'm a woman and call me she, and inside I'm like, yes, that feels true. Complicated because of my queerness and my position as a feminist. Oh yeah, and I'm a drag king. The phrase drag king means a lot of things to different people, but here's what it means for me. I like to dress up as a man and perform masculinity. Usually this means I'm in front of a willing audience, lip syncing and dancing and acting out some character. Most of the time it's some version of my drag persona, Lance Mandible. Sometimes I dress up as Lance in non-performance situations, like going out for an evening or doing chores around the house, but not because Lance is a truer version of me. He's just a different version of me. See, Lance is kind of an asshole. He's pretty suave and never hesitates to hit on someone. He's pretty sure anyone would want to date him. He's self-centered and doesn't do a good job of reading a room and that doesn't faze him. And he is unapologetic in being the center of everyone's attention. I like to think that the asshole part of myself isn't all that big or overwhelming, but there is definitely a part of me that loves being the center of attention and longs to not apologize for it. As a kid, a girl, my parents and my teachers, and let's be real, the media, always told me I could be anything I wanted, but underlying that encouragement was an expectation that as I expanded into some ambitious and amazing adult, I would ultimately be kind of submissive, because I'm a woman. I would concentrate on my home and my own personal development at the same time as having a great career. When I ran into problems, I would look into myself to see how I had caused them, rather than asking other people to change. If I didn't have enough space to exist in the world comfortably, I would learn how to be smaller. And I did. And I hate that. And that's the gap that Lance fills. I had done drag in college as part of the boy band 69 Degrees, still patting ourselves on the back for that name, 
but stopped for a while in my early 20s after I moved to Seattle and got intimidated by finding my way into the performance scene. A couple of years ago, I got inspired to bring drag back into my life. My first performance in Seattle was at an All Kings show at an underground bar downtown, appropriately called Kings, which remains one of my favorite monthly drag shows of all time. I took the bus to the venue, and not sure how Lance in full makeup would be perceived on public transit, I packed all of my performance clothes and accessories into my backpack. I followed my Google Maps directions to the venue, and then realized I was awkwardly early, so I walked around the block a couple times. Finally, I came up to the address, which looked like a pizza parlor from the outside. There were a few people smoking cigarettes in front of the door who looked like maybe they could be drag kings. I walked up nervously to one of them and said, Um, I'm in the show tonight? They stuck out their hand and introduced themselves as Tony. I shook it and said, Hi, I'm Emma, and immediately cringed. Should I have said Lance? As an aside, I still feel awkward every time I perform about where Emma ends and Lance begins. Is it when I get my makeup on? My Lance clothes? When I walk over the threshold of the venue? I don't really know. And I'm never sure which pronouns to ask for or use for myself as a king or for anyone else. So for the purposes of this story, I'll be referring to all the drag kings with the singular they. Tony finished their cigarette and showed me inside through the pizza parlor, past the door marked employees only, to the dressing room, actually a hallway with a couple of mirrors. I unpacked my backpack and put on some of my clothes and started in on my makeup. While I did this, the other kings started to arrive. They all seemed to know each other and chatted about what was going on in their lives while they casually taped down breasts and glued facial hair to their chins. Some of them talked about trouble finding a job or problems at home, and some just talked about the alterations they'd made to their new outfit for tonight. Every once in a while, one of the bartenders would pass through with a box or keg and we'd all squeeze up against the mirror to let them pass, pausing in our application of eyebrow pencil. I stayed quiet, taking in the scene. I didn't feel like Lance yet, not able to take up space in this new situation. The other kings kept talking, teasing each other while they layered on their other identities. Sometimes it feels like drag is all that's keeping me going, someone said, and a couple of other kings agreed. In a way, I felt lucky that this wasn't where I was at, but I understood what they meant. Before we got into our drag clothes, we were all different, whether our issues were with money, family, mental health, work, identity, or relationships. But what we had in common was that we were all pretending to be someone else, someone with more privilege and magnetism than we have in our everyday lives. When I stepped on stage later that night, I was still incredibly nervous. My mouth was dry and my lips stuck to my teeth as I mouthed the words of the One Direction song I had chosen to perform. But the instant the stage lights hit my face, I was Lance. And for four minutes, I drew all the energy into the room, into my performance. And I didn't wonder how anyone felt about it. If they needed anything different or were bored or uncomfortable, I took up all the space I possibly could. Afterward, I was elated and exhausted with the endorphin high of pretending and performing and the crumpled up dollar bills bulging out of my pockets, and for the rest of the night I forgot how to be small or cautious. As we watched another King's performance, Tony came up and put their arm around me. I've been doing this for 30 years, they said. Still get nervous, still love it. I nodded, sort of in awe. You know, you're good. I hope you keep doing it. Even as Lance, self-centered as I was, I felt a little humble. I will, for sure, 
I said. And I have. Though a lot of the time I get bogged down in picking out new costume pieces or new music, every now and again I stop and think about how powerful it is to get to sometimes step out of the gender restrictions the world puts on me and pretend to be someone else. Someone I've created and honed who is larger than life and takes up space without thinking or worrying about it. Right now, drag is one of the many things that's keeping me going. But it's more special because I know it will always be there. A place to step into when the rest of the world becomes too much. Emma Anderson, a.k.a. Lance Mandible, lives in Greenfield, Massachusetts, making tasty food and performing whenever possible, in drag and not. It burned in shame Back and forth through all those years Our final story this week, from Eric Michaels. To most people who know me, I am a fairly masculine-presenting, cisgender man. I doubt most people would imagine that I have a story about gender, but coming to face and accept my gender is something that has taken over a decade. It's something that's inextricably a part of the story of my mental health and how music and circus probably saved my life. As a content warning, I will be discussing eating disorders, so if that is a difficult subject for you, skip to the next story or do whatever else you need to do. Um, I can't tell this as a story of a single event or point in time. It's one of those stories that really only exists with the distance and perspective of time linking together things that didn't feel linked in the moment. I'm 16 years old, sitting in my friend Chris's bedroom. He's talking to me about his newfound interest in bodybuilding and weightlifting, and at this point in my life this is not something that's particularly interesting to me, but i am he's my friend and I'm listening to him talk, and he starts to go on about idealized body types and how fitness enthusiasts, when they're training towards body types, generally speaking, women are training towards something of an hourglass physique and for men it's more of a triangle shape. And I don't really understand why, but this feels unfair to me. I don't want to look like a triangle. That's not something that I find beautiful. That's not something that I want to be. But he tells me this is just the way it is. By the summer after I turned 18, it's all become a tangled mess. I want to be beautiful. But it is important to me to be beautiful in the way that a woman is beautiful. And because I've romanticized mental illness, I want to be sick, but it's important to me to be sick in the way that society says is for women to be sick and not for men to be sick. So I stop eating. For a day at a time, two days at a time, three. 
It's easier to get away with than I thought. It's not something anyone's looking for. It's not something young men do, so nobody really notices. It's early afternoon, in the August of that summer, and I'm in my parents' basement. I'm five foot eight, the same height that I am now, and at this point I weigh about 112, 113 pounds, and I find that I can no longer stand and play the bass guitar. After a few minutes, I'm too tired. I feel weak, I feel pain, and when I put the instrument down and look at my shoulder, I see that it is covered in purple, blotchy bruises from the weight of the instrument. This is bullshit, I say to myself. I walk upstairs and eat a bowl of cereal. The following spring, I attend Oberlin College's Drag Ball. For those who are unfamiliar, it's been described as Oberlin's answer to prom. It is a gigantic gender-bending party. I am uncomfortable and self-conscious, but nervously excited about the idea, and my friends insist that it will be fun. I am intensely overwhelmed when I'm there, because I just don't handle parties well, and this is a party among parties. But in preparing for it, I shaved my chest and armpits for the first time. And for maybe the first time in my adult life, I see some beauty in my own body. I have not stopped shaving my chest and armpits to this day. Around this time, I don't remember exactly when, I see Cirque du Soleil's Kidam. It's a beautiful show, and in the middle, there's an aerial fabric act. And watching the act, I find that I cannot figure out the aerialist's gender. Now, even though I am an Oberlin student at this point in my life, I still naively think of gender in a fairly rigidly binary way. And so it's kind of blowing my mind that there could be ambiguity about gender in something and someone that is so beautiful. And I begin to wonder whether the beauty and mystery that I wish I could embody is not so limited in its gender. By a few months later, I am relapsing hard. I have taken on too much, and I feel overwhelmed, so I return to things that give me a feeling of control. The time spent in the college cafeteria for lunch and dinner is too important for socializing to give up. I see too many of my closest friends primarily at those times of day. So instead of avoiding meals, I purge after almost every one. I tell exactly one person. She is unhealthy in ways that overlap with mine, and so we can spiral down together. She builds corsets as a hobby. I ask her to make me one and dream of a beautiful hourglass body. After months training for the spring Oberlin Circus show, learning basic contact juggling and tumbling and insisting to myself that I can perform what I would now call even these basic feats of acrobatics and coordination while fighting a war with my own body, I find in the end that I am weak and sloppy. 
I see the pictures, and I am not the otherworldly circus entity that I thought I could will myself into being. I am still me. I resent this fact. I start, again, the process of redefining what I want myself to be. I'm prioritizing whether it's more important for me to get better at circus or to keep purging. I never do collect on that promised corset. I am 26, and a friend of mine creates a circus show called If Man Is Five. The title is a reference to a Pixies lyric, but is also a reference to the fact that the cast is five men, which is notable primarily because semi-professional circus is an overwhelmingly female-dominated industry. I create a rope piece for this show. I write an original song, which, if Harris decided to use it, you may be hearing for the background of this. And the director of the show asks us all to write what he calls manologues. Brief monologues to intersperse throughout the show, discussing our experiences of being men and being circus artists. I begin my monologue with the words, I've never liked men, and I mean it. Men are responsible for so much that is monstrous in our world, and it has always terrified and shamed me to think that I am one. But even though I think the creator of the show wanted thoughts about how our gender influenced our experience of circus, I go on to speak about how circus has changed my feelings about my gender. I talk about how much less discomfort I feel with my body now that it's on my side. Now that it's the thing that lets me do things in the air that I would have found incredible a few years ago. And I still hate the options that society gives for boys for how to become men. When I see myself in the air doing circus on video, I still wish I saw a woman's body. I still wish I had a woman's body, or at least a different body than the one I have. I'm not sure I'll ever fully untangle my feelings about my male body from my feelings about my body in general. If I'll untangle my feelings about my gender from my disdain for how our society defines that gender, and how much just fucking gross stuff is expected or accepted in men. But I think if I truly was something other than a man, I would know it. So this is where I am. I'm living a process of being a man, but defining what that means for myself. Of having a male body, but accepting that that's what I have to work with. Even if it is a bit more triangle than hourglass. And I know that's not really an ending for a story, but I don't know that this story has an ending, so that's the best I've got. Keep your head down Keep the edges rough Always get stronger Never strong enough 
clear of distractions Work alone Keep your focus Keen and home Eric is a composer, aerialist, and ER nurse living in the Philadelphia area. He has five pet mammals and five pet string instruments, though this ratio was not planned. We'll pick it up before we go. Say I can't, then call myself a that's our show for this week. Keep up with upcoming episodes by following us on Twitter at the handle The Second Page or at facebook.com slash secondpagestories. Be sure to subscribe to us from your podcast service of choice. We're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at our website, secondpage.org. We're collecting stories this week for our upcoming episode on nostalgia. Thanks to all of our contributors this week. Thanks, Galia. Thanks, Emma. Thanks, Eric. We used music this week from Poddington Bear, Josh Woodward, Nine Inch Nails, our very own Sean Hansen, and storyteller Eric Michaels. Check these artists out, links on our website. Thanks for listening and tune in in two weeks for Nostalgia.